everybody, welcome to Media Review Pod, a variety podcast of discussions, opinions, and interviews focusing on the entertainment side of media. My name is Richard Santiago, and today we'll be talking about the new film Ad Astra, written by James Gray and Ethan Gross, and directed by James Gray. As always, you can tweet at us using the Twitter handle at Media Review Pod and the hashtag Media Review Pod. You can also send us an email at MediaReviewPod at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or suggestions. And you can also leave a voicemail by calling 407-603-5847. Also, if you are so inclined, please rate and review the show by going to our Apple Podcast page and leaving a five-star review. This helps us get noticed and hopefully get more listeners. All right, now that we got that out of the way, I'm really pumped today because we have a very special guest for our chat on Ad Astra. He is a film and TV journalist who also works in film and TV development in LA for Big Swing Productions. He's also a reader for the Sundance Fox and Disney Television Writers Lab, as well as one of the programmers for film festivals such as AFI Fest, Outfest, and the Indian Film Festival of Los Angeles. His PhD in communications was granted at USC, and his research has been published in Poetics, Cognitions, and Transformative Works and Cultures. A regular contributor to Movie Maker magazine, I am pleased to have with us Ritesh Mehta. Welcome to the pod. Oh, thank you so much, Richard. It's been it's a, it's an honor. It's actually my first time on a podcast. Oh, so sweet! I'm really, I'm really thrilled and I'm grateful that you reached out to me. I'm very excited. So, should I call you Doctor or just Ritesh? No, no, no. Let's just call Ritesh. <laughs> People have asked me that over the years, and I just, I just, it just, it just becomes a little awkward for me. It's <laughs> fun. Come on. All right, you can yeah, you can um, you can mention Doctor once in the whole conversation. Okay, great. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll insert it when you least expect it. All right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So as the audience might already have surmised, we met at USC on the set of a thesis film, right? Yes, it was uh, Brad and Doomler's thesis film. It was Mimic. It was actually I think I met you on my second day ever on a, on a, on a, on a set on oh. a, on, a, on any set. Mm-hmm. So. It was, uh, and I remember our conversation quite vividly because I was actually like, I had a double kind of dual role. I was like helping out as second assistant director, but I was also doing my research on student filmmakers and, you know, how students kind of collaborate in film school. Yes. And how, um, so to that end, I was, you know, I, I was like kind of helping out in a, in a role on set, but I also... Uh, was I didn't know exactly. What you were the other there role to study were. us. We were your guinea yeah, pigs. I was, I was, <laughs> I was studying you. In fact, so that's one of like I, I kind of published my research and um, in one of the uh, journals you mentioned earlier, Poetics, about like about hustling in film school and mm-hmm. and the different avatars that hustling take uh, take take on in film school. Um, but I remember my conversation with you because you were the person who explained to me what a script supervisor does mm. and broke down for me all the various roles that a scripty does. So I remember that conversation very vividly. Thank oh. you for telling me what a scripty does. Great. Hopefully I, 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 I was right and I didn't steer you wrong. <laughs> no, no. In, fact, in fact, you made it more uh, interesting. So since then, I've worked not only as second AD on student uh, and other productions, but also as a scripty. So okay. yeah, that's a role that I really enjoy as well. Great. That's fantastic, man. Um, so uh, I, I remember um, you, you told me that you were doing this research and I honestly didn't really know um, 
what exactly is it that, that you were doing? I did read the abstract of your, th of your uh, research. Um, and hustling is something very peculiar because it's something that's, it's not taught in film right. school. You, you're just thrown into the lion's den and you have to kind of learn it. And some people are just uh, born with the whole um, hustling gene. Um, some people just have to learn the hard way. Uh, what, what, what? I mean, was that what you learned about it? Right. So, I mean, so what? My my research. So this was when I was in the uh, PhD program, and you know, in a PhD program, you produce like a dissertation length, mm -hmm. like or a book length, um, kind of re uh, book length research. And I chose um, film schools because not much research has been done either in sociology or even in communication. Or that like there's a subfield of communication called media industry studies uh and there hasn't been done much research on film school so a lot of research has been done on uh on productions and film sets to a certain extent but not how student films operate mm -hmm. and also not about how film schools prepare students so i was interested uh like my my research method was ethnography so you kind of go in you go into the field you go into uh, the world of the people who, who you want to study and you kind of figure out once you kind of spend some time there you figure out your research questions on the way and I became more initially I was interested in you know how does collaboration happen on a set so what does for example a director of photography know about an editor's work mm -hmm. in order for, for you know in order for them to do their work better so I kind of was interested in the interdependencies in the role on a film set or in general in film production but then the more I stayed and I and, and the first I basically followed two films. I followed the thesis film that we met on and the, the, and I followed another class project. And my interest became more about how film school prepares students. And one of the uh, one of the um, in my interviews and, and just hearing students talk, I kept hearing the word hustling, which actually I hadn't heard before. Uh, academics or like other PhD students don't hustle mm -hmm. the same way. Uh, it's kind of, it feels almost, I mean, I mean, they do definitely, but like we don't even consider it hustling. I feel like now that's become more common parlance, but back then when I heard it, it was kind of a new term. And what I learned was that hustling, you know, I don't think it's necessarily, yes, there's some people who are kind of born with a certain amount of salesmanship and charisma, etc. But I found that in film schools, at least, uh, hustling is a very social phenomenon. And you kind of learn it in interaction with others. Mm -hmm. You learn about uh, just the importance of forming connections. And there's no way you can even make a film, I, 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 I found out, without really knowing other people. If you don't know who you want to collaborate with, and you don't know how, like, how to establish a hierarchy on a film set, for example, um, you can't really kind of make a movie. And like I found that there's like a strong social basis in making movies. It's not just about the craft. It's not just about appreciation of cinema, but it's also about, and it's not just about, you know, how amazing the story is, because as we all know, we can have an amazing story when you start off, but the film can be terrible. Right. And there can also be just a lot of like stuff behind the scenes that just don't go down very well. So I, the way I understood hustling from my research was that hustling through the various avatars of hustling, hustling as competition or hustling as just connection forming um, or hustling about hustling as knowing about what others are good at. Um, all of that helps students become kind of stronger filmmakers and just prepare for the industry because the industry that 
that is the Los Angeles-based industry, mm-hmm. is extremely competitive, and you need to kind of hustle even more after your film school. So I found that hustling actually gives students, uh, they learn it over the years. Uh, they Some people become better at it, some people maybe not so. And it's not even becoming better at it, it's just becoming, it's ha- kind of gaining a certain kind of thicker skin, right. which kind of helps you in the industry. So that's what, that's what I ended up understanding about hustling. Okay. Now, um, because of the wonders of social media, I've been able to keep the connection with you, right? And now, yes. e- even now that we live, what, 3,000 miles apart almost, right? Yeah. Um, oh, I, are you in New York? Where are you? No, I'm in Florida. Oh, you're in Florida? Yeah, okay. I'm in Florida. I did yeah. not know that. Yeah. I live in the city of Orlando right now. So. Interesting. Yes. Florida Project City. Yep. Yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, um, but h- however... Every time you post a TV or, or, or film review, I, I usually read it. And not just because I'm interested in, in a particular film, but because I always find it uh, fascinating how, how you describe and evoke the feeling a particular work brought out in you. It's not so much of you telling us what the movie's about, but more about what it means to you when you watched it and the feeling it left in you when it was done. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for reading the reviews. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, fun. It's always fun to do that. They can be a little inaccessible because they're often usually personal and it's not like a review in a traditional sense, because as you said, I don't, uh, this is first of all, just on social media for my friends primarily. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's so I don't undertake the typical format where you summarize and you describe the performances. It's kind of just something in my head. And I typically kind of like, I like to write them. I kind of watch, I watch the film and then I run back. I like to write it at home for the most time. I kind of run back while it's still fresh in my head and I will just like vomit out something. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't really edit what I write actually. I just, oh, wow. very little, very rarely will I edit. I've become a little bit more conscious now, but earlier at least I would just like, vomit out a paragraph or two and that's just kind of unfiltered and raw mm-hmm. and um you know it just helps me it kind of uh helps uh crystallize and um it kind of helps me just remember what i what my, what my first feelings were mm-hmm. or my first thoughts were and later on i can always i can almost always go back to that those paragraphs and expand on them uh, in my own head in conversation with people. But because I watch so many movies for like, uh, just for for the work that I'm doing right now, I often find it hard. And I always re- I respect critics and podcasters who are able to remember their reactions to films like from like months or years before they watch them, uh, after they watch them. And I, I find it a little hard. So when, when I go back to, so basically I, I write for myself. Mm-hmm. And then if my friends can appreciate it, uh, and I'm glad that you do, um, then that's, that's, that's a bonus. Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> I find that when you, when, you, when you write, you always connect with me somehow. Um, even with films that I didn't quite like. Like, for example, when writing about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you mm-hmm. use the following to describe it, and, and I quote, it's Achilles heel, or maybe instead it's erogenous zone. Is that what you may take away from it? Depends on how much previous knowledge of Hollywood 60s iconicity, 
60s, 70s pop culture knowledge, Quentin Tarantino's own tropes and ego dive bars, and the film's own marketing and notoriety you bring to it, unquote. And, and this is just a section of that short review, but I think <laughs> it encapsulates exactly what I thought of it as I was seeing it. Like I said, I, I wasn't a big fan of this movie, but uh, we can talk about that in, in another episode. Um, sure. And here's another one from your review of the movie Roma, which people in the audience already know I didn't quite like either. Um, but your final thought on this review I found to be quite precise. And I quote, in the final non-analytic analysis, I was kept at a slight distance from the proceedings. But not every coninor of cinema must incite an ugly Aristotelian cathartic tear. This is a filmmaking about bellwethers, making forecasts and omens, but not just through formal innovation. We are invited to just sit and contemplate how life unfolds with the times and how the times unfold in a life, unquote. And this goes, again, to the heart of what this movie is, whether you like it or not. Um, well, I hadn't, uh, I had forgotten that I had written it that way. Uh, and it's actually very interesting for me to hear it being said aloud. It's <laughs> almost, and now it's, now it's become real. You've made it real, Richard. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, actually... I mean, not that you're reading it, it's definitely something that if I had even written it a day afterwards, I think I would have written it in a more analytic or surgical fashion. Mm -hmm. It's just sometimes certain movies, um, I like to hold on to their feelings. And because for me, like I go to the cinema to kind of tell me various kinds of emotions that, you know, not just like uh, that humans experience, but human beings in the world and also taking into consideration the specific context, the political context and the social context that uh, these feelings are happening in and in which the story is being told. So for me, it's important to capture that um, in a way. And and for me, it's important to know what how, how I felt in even writing that out. So I think when, when, you, when you read these aloud, it, it tells me that... Um, it tells me how important these movies are to me, even if I don't like them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let me tell you, I'm really excited to dig into Ad Astra. But yeah. before yes. we get into that, let's talk a little bit about you. Sure. Um, so I, I always like to ask my first-time guests some background questions to get those juices flowing and also for the audience to get to know a little bit about you. So where were you born and raised? I was born in Bombay back when before it was called now it's called Mumbai but back then it was called Bombay India? Uh, in India and I was I, I lived there for the first uh, 17 years of my life before I came to the US uh, for my undergraduate and then I went back for a couple of years and then I came back for grad school okay and what was life after your the university so you did you did grad school um, and then your PhD Right. Right. So yeah, I mean, I've been in school for a long time. <laughs> I've been I've been here on many many visas, um, and I'm still on a visa that I'm hoping that they can they as we speak. I hope that they are reading my application and renew it. Uh, but so I did my undergraduate in business, um, in marketing and management, because back then I thought I wanted to go back and you know 
like help uh, in my family business, mm-hmm. but I quickly realized that I'm not very interested in business. Um, so I spent some years in Bombay realizing that and kind of that's when I realized that, you know, movies definitely interest me. Uh, but I was, I'm also like, as you may have figured out from my movie writing, I tend to fancy myself as a bit of an intellectual. So it's a little bit of, uh, a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a pretense that comes in. Uh-huh. Uh, and I'm kind of conscious of that, but I, I, you know, I was interested because I did not study the stuff that I was actually interested in undergrad. I went back to grad school to do philosophy. So I went to St. Louis to get my master's in philosophy. Okay. And, um, then I realized that philosophy is good, but I don't want to be a professor in philosophy, and it's also a very competitive market. So I decided, what what's remaining? What else am I interested in? So basically, it was uh, film production, screenwriting, cinema studies, journalism, and communication. Those are the five things. I've tied two programs in each. I wanted to be in a big city. I also wanted to be financially independent. So... Um, the, I, I applied to a mixture of PhD and master's programs. I got into the USC, um, the USC cinema studies program uh, in the master's, but they were not offering me any money. But uh, a stone's throw away, the communication school Annenberg uh, gave, was giving me a full ride for the PhD program. Wow. Uh, so I decided to go there. And in my statement of purpose, I had written that I wanted to study communication in the filmmaking process. Um, and surprisingly, <laughs> that's what I ended up doing because knowing me, I changed my mind about things so often that I'm surprised that what I, I wrote in my statement of purpose, I stuck with it. Yeah. And actually that, that turned out to be, uh, to, to lead to where I am right now. Okay. So once you finished your PhD, this was what, four years ago, right? Uh, 2015. Yes. Yeah. Um, did you dive into the, the the business of making movies, or was this something that was already starting gradually for you? Uh, no, I had to. I I kind of went to very. Um, so let me just back up. So most uh, most people who go to a PhD program do it because they want to be professors. They want to teach. They want to do research, mm. um, and they want to kind of go the academic route. And I was interested in that. I definitely. Um, kind of began to drink the academic Kool-Aid much more while in my time at uh, at USC than when I started there. Um, but it's very competitive. And I knew I wanted to stay in a big city. I knew I, and honestly, I wanted to remain in LA. I wanted to be near where all the movies that I loved were being made. And I wanted to kind of understand the industry better. So I feel like what I did in my dissertation uh, and even getting on student film production um, helped me understand that this is what I want to do, um, but I started at the bottom. I, you know, I'm the kind of person I am not. I'm not like very bring up hustling again. I'm not the best. Like you know, I didn't learn hustling myself. <laughs> in the in that, so I, I I don't know how to, for example, talk myself up, right? So I started at the bottom. I feel like I, what I should have been internships. Um, while I was in grad school, but I didn't do any. I was just focused on academic life. I was teaching my own classes. So after grad school got done, after my PhD, I started off in internships in development companies. So I, you know, basically what people told me was, are you interested in being in the office or are you interested in being on set? Mm-hmm. And also for the purposes of me being international and for me to get better credentials and letters of recommendation, it was easier for me to be doing office, uh, to be doing office jobs. And my friend told me that, you know, you're, uh, you know, you have 
you're interested in writing, you have decent writing skills. So why don't you try development? Uh, I did not know what development was back then. Uh, and I just applied for a bunch of development internships. Um, for one year, I just did those. Were, they, um, were these uh, paid internships or just? No. So for one year, it was unpaid. Oh, it wow. was like, yeah, I, it was, and I was like, you know, what was funny was that uh, something that I've been struggling with the last four years is everyone um, doing internships is like, you know, 19, 20, 21, 22. Mm -hmm. uh, finally, they would have been, if I had chosen a slightly different career, or even when I was at USC, they would have been my students. Uh, in fact, for one of the jobs that I did, the person I was reporting to was my student. <laughs> um, so it was an interesting kind of, you know, dynamic. change of paths and dynamic. Yeah. Um, but I did, the, so for me, the first break was one year after school in 2016, I got a paid internship at Sundance. And that, for me, I feel uh, really started me off. Uh, I'm still, I still work for Sundance. This is the episodic program. So that's it. Like, you know, Sundance was amongst the first television labs. It started mm. in 2014. Barry Jenkins was part of the first lab. Uh, this was before Moonlight. And I was an intern there. It was great. I just really, really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed reading scripts. I really enjoyed seeing my boss um, give notes to the writers that we were uh, working with. And that's when I realized I want to work with writers mm. and I want to work with the directors. It became clear to me actually talking about like our common friends. Like I, I was part of a writer's group in grad school just to try it out. And I realized that I'm not interested in screenwriting. I'm not very good at it. I'm not very good at inventing conflict. The second act of a feature film feels like this huge, difficult plane to traverse. Yeah. So I said, and you know, I, I'm not a natural storyteller. Uh, even when I talk about myself, I have a hard time making a story about my life. Um, so I said, I'm interested in working with writers and directors. So what can I do with that? And that's when I also got into film festivals. Mm -hmm. And I got into, uh, again, uh, all both the reading and the film festival route, in case uh, some of your listeners are interested in trying these out. These are... Um, kind of like filtering mechanisms in, in the industry because there's so many applicants, so many talented people, people who want to tell stories, people who want to make movies that, especially in LA, or like if you live in any big creative center, there's a lot of talent that comes into these cities and there's very few positions available. There's more now in different venues, but generally speaking, there's always, I mean, we, we all know this. It's just like really hard to kind of, uh, to, to kind of get them noticed and selected and represented. Um, but uh, with certain labs like Sundance and with certain film festivals like the Indian Film Festival of LA and even AFI Fest, I felt that um, I saw how they managed relationships with filmmakers that they accepted and that really motivated me. Mm. That I said, I like, I mean, I like, I love watching movies and I love talking to filmmakers about their process. And I ended up just doing more of that. Okay. And as as development coordinator at Big Swig Productions, um, what 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 are your responsibilities there? Right. So Big Swig actually uh, is, if you ask me again in 2015, where would I want to be working? What kind of company? And I didn't really have a very solid idea of the industry, but I think uh, given my knowledge of it now, I would have said, I want to work in this kind of company. So it's a small production company. It's uh, it's uh, it was started by Kira Sedgwick, uh, which some listeners might know from like she's um, from the closer and um, she's like she's been acting 
for like 20 plus years, but now is getting into writing and directing, uh, sorry, producing and directing. And she started this company two years ago, Big Spring Productions, with two of her partners, um, uh, Meredith Bagby and Valerie Stadler, who are my who are my bosses. And what I do is I do some amount of scheduling. So there's some amount of assistant work uh, in terms of just like setting meetings and setting calls with uh, writers as, or, you know, places that we're pitching at, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually work on a couple of projects with the writers. So I help break down the story and we do both film and television. So okay. uh, I I do a lot of, first of all, all the reading that, that is submitted to us. So any production company uh, will get scripts submitted to them for consideration. Uh, so I do a lot of that reading and I help and we discuss in our weekly meetings which projects sound interesting and which writers we want to meet with. So uh, I have a, you know, I have a voice in helping bring to my boss's attention which which submissions that we are getting are interesting and worth considering. And Big Swing is interesting, uh, really unique because they really focus on female uh, female-led projects mm. and a lot of queer projects as well. So, in a way, it's kind of doing the projects and they're kind of working with talent that I'm personally very interested in working with myself. So yeah, I I read scripts, I set the schedule, and I work with writers uh, on their scripts. Okay, and then um, so coming up, there's the AFI Film Fest that's happening in November, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And... Yeah, so for AFI Film Fest, I, I've been working with them for the last four years uh, as a screener. A screener, like a reader, just like watches a lot of films. The readers read a lot of scripts, screeners watch a lot of films. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, these festivals, especially AFI Fest, which is like one of the largest, which is the largest festival in Los Angeles right now, uh, receive thousands of submissions. So they have like a team of screeners. So I watch like a lot of films every year. <laughs> That's good. Uh, every summer. Um <laughs> And um, it's coming up in November. It's coming up on November 14 to 21, so like two weeks before Thanksgiving. And it it showcases some of the best films of the year. Um, That's the first time these films um, will be playing in Los Angeles for the most part. And a lot of amazing international films. So around this time when uh, countries are sending their Oscar submissions and finalizing those Oscar submissions, oftentimes... Uh, people in LA uh, get to see those films um, at the AFI Fest. Okay. And um, there's also Artists for Change, right? You want to talk to me? Yeah. So I, Artists for Change actually came out of one of my early internships at this small boutique production company called Rough Diamond Productions, which is run by Julia Verdon, an amazing, amazing woman, a producer who's getting into directing and who has gotten into directing for the last four years. And that company is interested in social message films. And the, the main project that they've been working on is, project, is a project about sex trafficking mm-hmm. amongst young women in Los Angeles to kind of to go against, to kind of dispel the idea that trafficking occurs in other countries and poorer countries and focusing on stories based on actually working with, um, with, with, traf- uh, with trafficking shelters that rescue these, these girls who are, who are, uh, who are trafficked. Um, so they've made a short film and a feature film called Lost Girl, uh, Lost Girls about about from those experiences. And they've also created a nonprofit called Artists for Change to kind of um, create a lot more visibility and create 
uh, a fund for making movies about about this. So if if anyone amongst uh, your listeners is interested in donating, uh, please go to Artists for Change. I'm on the advisory board there, and I know that the kind of work that they're doing is super important. This, and I've worked on those projects myself. I've seen the scripts develop, and now the feature is ready. Um, so hopefully we can get it out to festivals. Great. And finally, you wanted to give a shout out to one of our USC colleagues, film yes. Miss Virginia, right? Yes, Miss Virginia. Miss um, Virginia is uh, directed by Daniel Hanna, who we both know. Uh, hey, Hanna. Who, who I met the same t- on the same set that I met you on on Mimic, um, and it's his directorial debut, and he's directing the wonderful Uzo Aduba based on a real yes, story, a real life story and it's coming out in october on october 18th in fact i think daniel's on a tour across the country he's going back to arkansas um uh and to virginia for for screening so i would definitely love and i know daniel would love it if um you know we helped uh we helped spread the word for his film absolutely so this film's coming out in october 18th it'll be on select theaters and on vod right Yes, yes, I think so. Yeah. All right, great. Anything else you you uh, you like to talk about? No, I mean, um, I again, like, I'm not sure if like, um, like you know, connecting two dots brought up so far. But in case your listeners are interested in getting in, you know, working in the industry, it's it takes persistence, as you as you may have heard, and it's just taking a lot of um, being being bold about and hustling to make your connections and mm-hmm. not being afraid about you know, reaching out to people and asking them in a polite manner, or can I meet you for coffee? Can I buy you, uh, can I buy you a coffee? And just learn about their career paths and learn about, um, you know, uh, their perspective on, on entering the industry. And if you do enough of that, then you'll get opportunities. Uh, so sometimes it's a matter of luck, but sometimes it's also a matter of reaching out to people so that when an, if and when an opportunity does arise, they can think of you and reach out, reach back out to you all right so now let's move on to our next segment uh what's helping us procrastinate these past few days okay um well a lot of people this summer i watched uh two amazing tv shows uh there's many of course this, we're in the age of impossibly an impossible amount of television but um i watched fleabag in in may um you mean Emmy-winning uh, Fleabag? The Emmy-winning Fleabag, the Fleabag that won the Emmy last weekend, and which got Phoebe Phoebe Waller-Bridge, the amazingly talented Phoebe Waller-Bridge, was also uh, who also created Killing Eve, and who also created a lesser-known show, which you also should check out called Crashing. Um, that so I I watched both seasons of Fleabag. Actually, I'd watched the first season last year, and then there was a high a gap, and I just heard like. Enough of my friends has talked about it, mm-hmm. and like in the right when it dropped on Amazon Prime, I think, and um, I said I have to watch it, and it was just I kind of was amongst the early people who were converted, uh, at least in my in my network, probably amongst the best TV I've seen. <laughs> it's just six episodes, two seasons. It's just two seasons long. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the creator has uh, Phoebe Waller Bridge has mentioned that she will not be. Uh, writing any more seasons because it's it's basically six hours of your life um, that'll be very well spent 
Um, I don't, I don't know if you watched the show. I have not. I have not had the. I strongly, uh, strongly the recommend it because it's just doing, it's straddling an amazing line between comedy and drama, mm-hmm. and um, it's doing very interesting stuff with breaking the fourth wall, which many shows have done, but I think this one just takes it to the next level, um, and it's just really good, smart, economical storytelling. All right. With fantastic characters. Um, I think. Even if you go in hearing all the hype, you'll still be very, very impressed. Um, and there's one new character in season two that really helps shift the dynamics and really helps spotlight that season. So that everything you've heard about Fleabag is is on the money, and you should definitely check it out. All right. And that's on Amazon Prime? That's on Amazon Prime. Okay. Um, and the other show that I watched that actually has been five seasons in, but I only heard about it after it got the Emmy nomination, which I, I was like, what is this show? I've never heard about it. It's called Shit's Creek. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a Canadian show that's now available on Pop TV. And it stars, uh, it's created by Dan Dan Levy and his father, Eugene Levy. And his father, Eugene Levy, you, you've seen in many, many places. You've oh, seen yeah. him in all the American Pie movies, for example, yeah. uh, where he plays a father. But it's, it's, it's just a really funny, it's a, it's a very different comedy, um, very kind of, low stakes comedy uh, about a really rich family that you kind know, of um it's kind of taken out on the streets because it's evaded taxes for many years so the pilot opens with them being taken out of their castle so to speak and the one asset they do have is that they own a town called Shits Creek and they they're sent off to uh to live there and how it's about just like the comedy that comes from they're trying to adjust there. Uh, mm-hmm. It's also just like the characters are really great. And the first season, I would say, is a little bit less uh, impressive. Uh, but I would stick with it. It just gets really better second and third season on. And I think um, as more people have discovered it, more people have fallen in love with it. And Dan Levy just got an overall deal with ABC. Uh, the, the same week that Phoebe Waller-Bridge got her overall deal with Amazon. Uh, so I think both those creators are very exciting and worth looking out for. Okay. Anything else? Um, I watched the Downton Abbey movie <laughs> okay. last weekend. Um, I don't. I have, are you a fan of Downton Abbey? Have you I've, watched? The show? I've seen maybe two episodes. Okay. Um, okay. But that's it's, about it. It's been my um, greatest guilty pleasure since 2010 because it is just delicious. It's. Mm-hmm. It does. It's by uh, Julian Fellows, created by Julian Fellows, and he, like uh, Robert Altman, does amazing things with an ensemble cast. He does a fantastic job in giving every character. This is set in like 1800s, late 1800s, early 1900s. Actually, I'm sorry. It's set in early 1900s Britain, and um, it's about the aristocratic society and the upstairs and downstairs. And there's about like and the movie happens, like the series ended a couple of years ago, and now they have the movie, which takes place a couple of years later, where the series uh, after the movie ended. Uh, so it's just like, uh, for the fan, if you're a fan of the show, you should definitely go watch the film. If you haven't watched the show at all, I would not recommend the movie. You would not make No, I mean, that's one of those things where if you're not up to speed, you're probably going to not understand it. Yeah, and the fact that it's like, in, in the movie, they have like, 
20 storylines going on <laughs> because like and every character is given one moment and if you're a fan and if you're in, invested in all the characters then mm-hmm. it's great otherwise it's uh you won't know what's going on right and julian fellows he he writes every episode right um you know no, I, i've always wondered about that I like the so. movie is written by him uh because i don't know if he has a traditional writer's room he writes a lot of the but, episodes. Well, i remember i remember um listening to a kcrw podcast uh-huh. where he was interviewed and i believe that he's basically the writer of every single episode that's probably true i mean um it's a good way to retain the control and keep track of all the characters uh, he does an excellent job whatever he's doing even if he's getting some help from some other people um he's probably the main visionary on the show mm. um and i think the consistency in the storylines over the years is you know is proof that 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 model of writing definitely works in television all right so i've been kind of on a nostalgia ride for the past few months uh, this year, I really didn't have much time to just sit and, and binge something. Um, the last TV show I watched was Game of Thrones. Uh, and that's not a binge. It was just week after week. Um, and Barry. I, I Have you seen Barry? I, I saw the first season. Okay. Let me tell you. I, I, I just love the way that that show takes... What could have been a very one-season uh, premise, right? And just it twists it into this dark, comedic character study, w- without leaving uh, aside the uh, the side characters. Um, right. It's funny. It's it's pathetic. It gets really dark sometimes, but it also has a heart. Um, plus, if you've ever experienced life in 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 a theater setting or just being part of, uh, of an ensemble cast, yes, y- you will feel related to, to, to this show. Um, I highly, highly recommend it. And season, no, I, season I, two I, is amazing. I heard season two. That I need to, I need to catch up with that. For me, my favorite character was Noho Hank. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He is and and he's great in season two. He's great. He's great. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I highly, I mean, highly recommend that, 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 uh, that show. So, okay. Okay. Um, but anyway, I, I, I digressed. Uh, so so um, nostalgia, right? Yes. Uh, okay, so when uh, Stranger Things first came out, um, it was this niche Netflix show that nobody was talking about in the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it exploded. I think I saw it the week it came out. Not because I was looking out for it, but because Netflix just pushed it on me and said, you have to watch this. And I go, well, sure, all right, I'll, I'll watch it. So I gave it a try, and, dude, I was hooked. And it's not because I thought that, you know, um, this was one of those can't-miss shows. It's because I felt like it was tailor-made for me. Mm-hmm. You see, I'm, I'm a Xenial, right? I'm not a Gen Xer. I'm not a millennial. I'm kind of like in between. I was born in the beginning of the 80s, and I was raised in a, in a, in a household chock full of 80s stuff just because my elder siblings were uh, Gen Xers. So by the time that the 90s rolled around, I already identified as an 80s kid. Movies, toys, songs, you name it. And that's what I loved about Stranger Things. It felt to me like a show that wasn't just trying to be an 80s themed TV show. It was an 80s TV show. It, it lived and breathed 
the era. It felt like something that could have been made back then. Um, it has all the trademarks of an Amblin film, uh, a Stephen King novel, or, or just horror tropes of movies like A Nightmare on Elm Street or Sleepaway Camp, if you've seen that. Um, anyway, so like I said, I was hooked and I binged all of season one of Stranger Things. It was great. I loved it. And I was able to get members of my family to watch it as well. But then I kind of forgot about it. And season two and season three came along and I had other things to do and I never caught up to it, right? Uh-huh. And finally, last month, I was able to just sit down and watch season two and three back to back. Oh, back to back. Interesting. Okay. And I have to tell you, it was glorious. <laughs> I had so much fun with this show. Um, I can't even explain it. It's, it's a touch of nostalgia here and there, but there's also this interesting character development and visual flurries that it just i don't know it just keeps me coming back fantastic character development some of the uh newer characters uh, that came the 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 new characters in season three were very interesting yeah 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 and the music yes i was jamming to that show uh to the show's music uh, on Spotify for the following two weeks after I finished watching the series. Isn't that amazing? Just like to how how a show stays on, where you can just like jam to its music or even think about its images for days and months or years to come. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I, I watched the season three of Stranger Things the day it came out on oh, July Fourth. Wow. <laughs> I've watched all eight episodes, and you know it's very much connected to July Fourth themes. Um, and, um, I was, I was very hooked myself, especially with like the such, like the color palette of season three is so different yes. from season two in many ways. And like the, and the, and the major kind of, and I'm not making any spoilers here, but like the, like the major meta villain mm-hmm. in season two and season three have a kind of interesting shared imagery around them as well. And, um, yeah, I mean, it definitely makes you, and and we see these kids grow up. That's that's so that. that's so great because the the show is able to move forward in time with the kids, right? Because yeah. each season is just a little bit forward in time, so you don't have you're not stuck into when season one finishes, then you have to kind of pick up right where season one finished. You kind of right. pick up a couple, maybe a year after. Um, and that's great because you also see these kids not only grow up but change in their character as well. And it's I think it's great. Um, the other thing uh, that I wanted to uh, point out is season three is compared to one and two. Season three is very bombastic. Everything mm-hmm. is kind of like um, pushed to the nth degree. And I love it. It's, yes, it's so ridiculous. Some of the things are so ridiculous. That mall, that mall as a as a great. As a, it's so a, great. It's such a stunning showpiece, and I didn't grow up here in the eighties, but it just takes me. Like, I I can help I can help understand how it would be to grow up in, to grow up in a small city in the eighties. They just do you know with all their all the candy machines and like that little amazing ice cream. Was it an ice cream shop yeah, that they have? Yeah. Like it's just amazing. And like even like the costuming for the ice cream, like the like the people who are, like the two kids who are who run the ice cream shop. Um, it's great. Like I just found those colors to be such. Like I still remember those like that those costumes very very vividly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they yes, season three in many ways like visually was 
taking more risks. And also because of the storyline, uh, I think they had to kind of go there. Mm-hmm. So, so that's exciting. I'm glad that it's, it's always good to have like one, one show that we can always go back to get to kind of nurse that portion of ourselves that we think we have lost and just get it back. Yes. Yes. Um, so that's Stranger Things. And then Lost is a show that is very near and dear to my heart. So um, it was the first show that I saw all the way to the end. Oh, wow. And I've talked about this before in other episodes, so apologies for bringing this up again. But Lost, to me, is a show that came out of the beginning of the so-called golden era of TV and mm-hmm. ended just as TV was invo- evolving into what I now call the binge era of TV. Right. right? The mm-hmm. streaming era of TV. Um and it's the quintessential water cooler show where you go on week to week. You go on adventures with these characters you get to know and you care about them. And you see them try to survive this mysterious island as well as their own baggage from their previous lives uh, before the plane crash. Um, and I love it. I love this show. So in a previous podcast, we briefly talked about Lost. And after that, I kind of got bit by the jungle bug. Uh-huh. And I just started to rewatch and then all of a sudden these lost rewatch podcasts started sprouting up and now there's this lost renaissance going on and i'm loving it dude just search for it i haven't actually watched i'm ashamed to say lost oh man it's so great to watch it well i'm excited for you to watch it and then get back to me there's a renaissance right now yeah I, i have no idea why i mean granted the show uh was I think it premiered 15 years ago. So yeah, that could so be mid, it. 2000, yeah, mid-2000. 2004. Yes. 2004. Four, okay. Uh, yeah, September 22nd, 2004. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, Big day. But, um, yeah, so if you haven't seen this show, it's, again, you have, when, when, you, when you finally watch it, just keep in mind that this was right after, a couple years after 9-11. Right. Um, and this is an era where shows used to um they used to make like five episodes or three episodes and then the network decided whether they would go on or not depending Mm -hmm. on the ratings and then they would order 13 more episodes and then they would order the back nine and so on and so forth um so it's great to to for me to do a rewatch with all this knowledge of how shows are made now compared to back yeah. then i got it. it was a very um, different model yeah but you know what, what i what i love about the show and that this is this is very personal to me um is is the way that uh characters develop in the show um sure there's mysteries and there's action and that's fine but for me the core of the show is the characters and how they interact with each other mm-hmm. um and how they interact on the island compared to the way they were before the crash. Right. Uh, and this is not a spoiler because, I mean, that's the premise of the show. People crash on an island and they have to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you ever get a chance to, to watch Lost, please get back to me because um, okay. I'm a diehard fan. And I would be... Uh, how, does hold up? how does it hold up watching it 15 years later and seeing you know advancements in how storytelling and uh, like how does it... Is the storytelling equally interesting to you? Yeah, well, it's first of all, this this was 
one of J.J. Abrams's babies. Uh, so um, he developed it. He he directed the the pilot episode, and he was there in the writers' room for the first, I want to say, four or five episodes. Um, and then Damon Lindelof took over with Carlton Cuse. Um, but this is a very interesting show because it has a very diverse cast. It has a, a Korean couple. It has a, an Iraqi character. Um, so it's it's this mishmash of different people that are forced to live together. Mm-hmm. And not only are they forced to live together on this island, but there's some mysteries going on um and it's it's them trying to survive and them trying to figure out what's going on and i think story-wise it does hold up there are some things that feel a little bit i want to say soap opera about it mm-hmm. um and just the nature of having 22 to 25 episodes in the first couple of seasons didn't help just because you have yeah. to kind of expand that story, um, right. but once it gets to um, to shorter seasons, because la- later in the seasons, uh, season four, five, and six were truncated seasons, because they knew where they were, to, where they wanted to go, story wise. So they knew that they didn't want to have seasons that lasted twenty or twenty five episodes, um, and it feels it feels like it has a better pace. Um, the introduction of new characters is a little bit more organic uh, as compared to some ep- some characters in season three that were kind of just shoved in there. Um, but the storylines are very interesting. You, you get to explore uh, Iraqi life um, after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you get to, to see how uh, this Korean couple that doesn't know English, have how they have to communicate. Um, you have... Uh, uh, an African-American father with his son and they're estranged. So what happened there and how they communicate in the island versus how they used to do it before the crash, stuff like that. Um, and I think it's, it's, uh, it's a great show just to see how TV has evolved or not. Um, because some of the things that they did, that this show did was imitated afterward. I mean, there were so many, knockoff right. lost shows that I, I can't even tell you uh, uh, shows that failed miserably because they they thought that they were imitating whatever uh, magic lost had um, uh-huh. and they just failed and uh, it's a, it's a testament to lost that to this day it's still it's still being mentioned it's still being talked about and like I said there's a there's a podcast renaissance going on and, and I'm loving it it's great. That, that's awesome. I mean, I think Lost from, I, I've I, I've examined it more through what people have told me and, you know, like all the other like theories that, you know, you hear your friends talking about, uh, about what's, you know, what happened. Um, but I mean, it's definitely in the academic canon. And, and I can tell you that like a lot of academic scholars and cinema studies scholars uh, have written a lot about it. There's been books about it, as you know, and you know they're being assigned uh, to students in like to undergrads who are studying media and television. So it's definitely a very important show and text from mm-hmm. the 2000s, for sure. And like I think it's, I am really curious about. Um, it's not there's not that many shows that undergo renaissance and like 
especially in a time like this where there's so many other shows to focus on. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting to me that you say that there's a podcast renaissance. I might check it out. All right. Great. And finally, I started yes. to reread the play Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Oh, okay. And I'm very much enjoying that as well. I find it very comforting just to go back into that world and revisit these stories. It's it's like putting on your favorite pair of jeans that fit like a glove. Are um, you um are you a fan of like were you always a fan of Harry Potter or um well, and then you came to Cursed Child? I well, yes, yes. Um so I have to credit my my little brother for yeah. um and when I say little little he's he's taller than me. Yes. Um, but yes. he's younger than me. Um so he got me hooked into uh this the, the Harry Potter world. Um and ever since I I I just I adore the, this world, this this magical place that uh I can go back for mm-hmm. for every every book. Um and you know, from for me, I start one paragraph and I'm there, back in the Forbidden Forest or or in Hogwarts, and um, I remember I I wanted to finish the series right before the sixth movie came out, mm-hmm. so I was pushing and pushing and pushing through, and it didn't feel like a chore at all. It it was just um one one of these great um trips that you take and and all you do is enjoy the ride it was great now harry potter is like even more more than last it's just i think it's like the defining series for young adults and like off to off it's going to be like the one of the most important like as important as lord of the rings was in like say the second half of last century mm-hmm. uh, and still is today in many ways, obviously, uh, now that Amazon's doing a show on it too. Uh, Harry Potter, it, it's, it's it, especially the way it understands magic and the way it understands um, how to build a world and how to create rules of a world. It's just outstanding Yeah, and what it does. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I find it fascinating that since, you know, I already know the storyline and, you know, you always find something new when, when you reread. The same happens when I go back and dust off the pages of talking stuff like the Children of Horen or the Silmarillion. Um, the narrative is so rich. The mythology is so well realized. Uh, although sometimes, you know, I lose myself in the story. I usually just find new things. And, and with Cursed Child, this play is such such a visual play that, that you can just get lost in it. I, I can't help thinking about what's happening on stage and, and how they managed to pull it off. Uh, and I still haven't had the opportunity to, to see it on Broadway, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's on my to-do list, so it's one I of the things I have to, to kind of check I guess out. I need to add it on my to-do list as well. All right, so that's it for me and my okay. nostalgia run <laughs> now. Are you ready for our feature segment? I am. Okay. Very much so. All right. Well, let's head on over to the stars with our discussion of Ad Astra. Here's a brief uh, synopsis from IMDb and Wikipedia. I kind of mishmash both. Right. Astronaut Roy McBride undertakes a mission across an unforgiving solar system in search of his missing father and his doomed expedition, whose experiment of 30 years now threatens the solar system. Now, Dr. Ritesh Mehta, <laughs> without going into spoilers, what did you think about Ad Astra? 
Um, I was very excited to watch it, I'll tell you, because um, his uh, James Gray's previous film, The Lost City of Z, mm-hmm. or if you're in England, The Lost City of Z, yeah. for that matter, if you're in India or other English-speaking parts of the world. Um, I, For me, actually, surprisingly, that film, The Lost City of Z, was my second favorite film in 2017, in a year that was extremely strong. Um, I, I really... Uh, so I hadn't heard of James Gray before, uh, before I watched Lost City of Z. So mm. the, the reason I went to watch it was, in addition to hearing the hype coming out of the festivals this past, it, it debuted in Venice, uh, it premiered in Venice uh, last month. And, uh, and I'm also always a huge fan of Brad Pitt uh, because I think he's a very underrated actor. Mm. Um, I, I liked it. I, I liked it and. So I, I liked it a lot on one level, and I somewhat liked it at another level, okay. <laughs> to kind of put it briefly. In terms of just the imagery and, you know, they say that cinema is supposed to take you there. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you can literally, as you said, to the stars and like stories are supposed to transport you. Mm-hmm. And I think especially for this film, if your listeners haven't watched it, um, it's worth watching it on as big a screen as possible. Yes, please. I actually watched it on a smaller screen, oh, wow. but I watched it in my favorite movie theater in L.A., so no regrets. Okay. Um, <laughs> which is the Vista Theater in Los Feliz. I will always, I will, I will hopefully, you know, that the theater will outlive me. It's coming on its hundred years. It's wow. like my favorite movie watching experience. Um, so it's not like the best in terms of the screen size, but it has very good sound. Mm. Um, and I just wanted to watch that the, the imagery from that film in there. Usually with all films, I, I never watch the trailer. I just know, generally speaking, what people have thought about it. Um, and then I just go watch it. Yes, amen um, to that. I, You know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of just not watching trailers oh i close my funnily i literally i close my eyes and yours inside trailers like when and you know when i was in this film the trailer of joker came out and i'm like okay uh maybe i need to go to the restroom right now (laughs) and i left because i did not want to see anything about that film uh so ad astra i um and I, i i can talk later about it in terms of the four or five other films that in space that have really moved me. And I also tend to like stories that just focus on one character in very desolate, mournful worlds. And uh, I want to compare Ad Astra to a film that came out earlier this year called High Life by Claire Denis, the, the French film, the French filmmaker, to last year's First Man by Damon Chazelle, okay. to The Amazing Gra- Gravity by Al- Alfonso Cuaron, uh, and maybe to Gattaca, which came out 20 years ago. Um, so for me, all those four films that I just mentioned were in my mind when I was watching this story about um, Brad Pitt and um, like an astronaut who kind of goes on a mission uh, to Neptune. It's not a spoiler. Um, and so in terms of the imagery, I loved it. I think it's just doing amazing work in terms of talking about how um, departments in filmmaking collaborate, like cinematography and visual effects and score together just have a very beautiful evocation here. Um, And, you know, I had my slight reservations in terms of story and character. I think I, I was kept a little distant and I wasn't as engaged. All right. I can elaborate on that later, but it's also, I mean, we can have this conversationally. It's up to you. All right. Uh, Well, 
without going into any spoilers, what what specifically about the character kept you kept you away? So I want to also distinguish here between the character and the performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think Brad Pitt is, as I said, an underrated actor. Um, and he, you know, I've been thinking about all the roles he does and the roles that I really like him in. And you know, he's a movie star. Yes. But he's also a very understated person and understated actor, at least in comes in terms of his performances. I think about all the way to like Meet Joe Black in in '96, where you know. In 96, he was like this big sex symbol and a hunk. I mean, he still is now, but he definitely was back then. And uh, I think about his amazing role in Moneyball, um, right? Which, um, where he plays like, uh, he's in the world of like sports gambling, if I recall right. Mm -hmm. And um, then I think about earlier this summer in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where again, all his characters don't speak that much. And I think he does really well with those characters where he's able to uh, communicate so much through his physicality, through body language, through his swagger. And like, you know, for him, swagger has different, like if you think of a swagger in Fight Club, and if you think of a swagger in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and his, he doesn't have swagger in Ad Astra, but he has the, the way he, well, swagger in, in the, like, you know, the swagger of Fight Club is different from the swagger in Ad Astra. He just carries himself in a very, in a way that immediately you want to pay attention to him. But what this film does really well and what he adds to the character is um, through the close-ups, he communicates with his eyes in a way that I haven't seen too often before. And I was reading a couple of, uh, analyses of the film and people say that they like the the cinematographer um hoi twen hoi tema um yeah (laughs) he um he really kind of uh shoots his eyes really well so i think for me the problem with the character was that brad pitt gives a very gives us a look inside but the character remains too internal uh, the conflict in the film is primarily internal, and there's like the voiceover, like he's narrating his mm. his life and his feelings, mm. and he's also, funnily enough, talking about his feelings to, um, you know, to the to the advanced uh, automated psychotherapists, yeah. right? Which is like so funny to think about this world in the near future where our therapists are so impersonal. Um, so for me, like I just didn't get a sense of more than his internal conflict in terms of interpersonal conflict i didn't understand and even though the world um there's, there's some amount of very um subtle world building and we understand the nature we i don't understand the philosophical turmoil that the world is in so i don't know i didn't have a very good understanding of the, the situation of earth and the moon and and human civilization and the kind of the role Brad Pitt how, how his character sees himself in the world in the future mm-hmm. so I just so in terms of external conflict and interpersonal conflict which we can get to because that would be a spoiler um, I wasn't that roped in but I you know because of his performance I understood his internal conflict pretty well all right if that if that helps oh yeah yeah definitely all right. Um, <clears throat> so uh, here are my, my thoughts on Ad Astra. Um, first of all, I, I like science fiction. It's one of my favorite genres, not because you get to th- see things that um, that you can only imagine, but 
because it usually tackles the human condition in a in a very unique way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, be it through metaphor, uh, parallel or allegorical situations, and especially through character, right? Now, when I talk about sci-fi, I always like to make the distinction between science fiction and science fantasy, like like Star Wars right. or something like that. So for this discussion, I just want to focus on science fiction, okay? Um, where you have technology and, and, and situations that are plausible within the realm of our uh, current knowledge of the physics of the universe, okay? So, mm-hmm. um, of course, it's, it's fiction, and, 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 and narrative is sure to take on some liberties with that, but... For the most part, it kind of stays within those parameters and, and, and just extrapolates uh, to a quasi-logical conclusion. Um, now, that being said, I feel like Ad Astra would fall strictly as a, as a science fiction film. However, I saw it more as a drama than an actual sci-fi flick. Um, and, of course, it's, it's in space with, with future tech and vistas of space. But the movie doesn't really care all about that, which mm-hmm. sometimes can actually help in the world building of the story. But it kind of sacrifices some of the some of the core elements of the sci-fi genre. And, and mainly for me, and this is very personal to me, the exploration part of it. Right. Um, I echo your thoughts on the visuals. I think they are stunning. Um, once you leave Earth, the color palette uh, just shifts. And we right. enter this grand, sometimes ethereal realm of our solar system. And it's awe-inspiring, especially if you see it in one of these big screens, like you said. Um, right. Where did you watch it? I watched it in an AMC, uh-huh. big, huge screen, um, and it uh, they give you food. So you can oh, okay. call up a... I, 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 I kind of hate that, that you get a server oh. and interrupts you uh, oh, to get I, your... I hate it. But that was the only time that I could actually watch the film. Right, right. And in a in a nice theater, so, um, so that's what I did. Uh, anyway, uh, so, so, uh, big screen. It has uh these huge vistas of space. Um, the cinematography is amazing. Um, uh, Hoyt van Hoytman, right? Uh, Hoyt van Hoytema, who Hoyt, also did. Yeah. Interstellar, he yes. did Dunkirk, yes. and he did so three yeah. amazing films. Yes. So this this guy, um, I think that his work here is equally impressive. Yeah. Uh, taking into account the the different ways light moves in outer space and bringing it to the fore, how it reflects on different surfaces, um, and like you said, the eyes, uh, the way he shoots them, the way he shoots uh, Brad Pitt's. I don't want to say craggy, but yeah, craggy face. Yeah, because you know yeah. he's 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 a fifty-ish year old man, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and he has uh, uh, lines of expression, right? Yeah, but they look—I don't know—the way they are shot, they look uh, very organic. I don't yeah. know how else to describe it. Um, yeah, you know, like there's a scene, like the shot in the trailer, um, where he is talking to um, his wife, uh, which. I have such reservations about in terms of like, how little role. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Once again, <laughs> wife. in Lord of the Rings, it was Aragorn. And here it is like, you know, someone else who leaves her and goes far yeah. away. <laughs> um, but like the way they, they show his eyes in the trailer, like, you know, like 
I think it's odd because they feel like pools, like they feel like there's so much reflection. But it was interesting, and that's for me the whole like the movie is very like there's so much suggestion of inner thought mm -hmm. and interiority. But my for me like like the problem was where the tone was so beautiful, uh, and once you kind of stay with it, and you're just like you kind of sink back into your seat and you accept the film and its visuals, it kind of washes over you, like many of these films do. But because of the kind of conflict that the storytelling was exploring, the interpersonal conflict that I was talking about earlier, I just felt in a strange middle place where the story did not let... I wanted to I want to contemplate after these films. I want these films to leave me in a contemplative mode. I felt it left left me in merely a cognitive, calm state of mind, which mm. I appreciate. Anything that makes me calm in today's environment is greatly appreciated, right? Right. But um, there was more there that I was just distracted by some of the action sequences, which are okay. I think you know you you know this film is released in 3500 theaters in its first week, so it's appealing to a mainstream audience as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know, like I don't I don't know if for me, at least on my first watch, um, like like the the tone of the film was kind of departing or going in a different direction. Than the storytelling mm -hmm. wanted wanted to go to. I don't know if that. I'm talking a little abstract here. So I don't know yeah. if it helps kind of flesh it out. Um, well, well, that would that, that would mean spoilers. So yeah. Um, so I was mentioning the eyes and 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 the way light moves in space and um, these reflections, uh, which I think were another big part of this movie, and it ties mm -hmm. directly to maybe the essence of the story it's trying to tell. Um, he starts the movie with with reflections mm -hmm. and they are everywhere in the film right up until the end it's a nod to the fact that that Roy uh, Brad Pitt's character he um he sees himself as a reflection of his father and you know it has it has shaped him into what he is right now and, and informed his decisions in his own personal life for for good or or, or bad and <clears throat> Like in, in his other movie, The Lost City of Z, there's a, a also a father-son dynamic mm -hmm. where the son is answering for the sins of his father. Mm -hmm. um, but what, what The Lost City of Z, although it's tragic, turns into a, a search for, for meaning in this right. world and how exploration can bridge humanity and heal a strained relationship in at Astra it is seen as almost a flaw and mm -hmm. the reason for many of our troubles as a nation of one of, of the world right and maybe it's my bias for science and and my interest for exploration but I find this to be a terrible message <laughs> And we could probably talk about this in detail. Wait, so what is the message you find terrible? Well, so so in the Lost City of Z, you get like I said, this father-son relationship, right? Mm -hmm. um, and even though y you don't you don't know where they ended up at the end, right? But the, right. It, but the but the act of exploration, which in the beginning for his son. Was yes. was kind of this wedge between their relationship. It kind of blossoms, and it's a bridge for them. Right? Absolutely, yes. Um, and by the end, the final words that they both say to each other 
is fantastic. Beautiful. It's, it's one of these. Well, also you 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 put that against the awesome awesome imagery of the um, of the tribe just uh, taking them through this amazing walkway with it's just cinematography is fantastic it's it's just it's glorious it's one of these yes. glorious epic shots right um yes. and, Beautiful. and but that by shot the end me was a movie but by the end even though like i said it's tragic you feel like there was a connection there was this bridge um and even though like i said exploration was this wedge it was also what got them together I completely agree. And I think, um, in, and now that you're saying it this way, it makes me realize the reason I love the film in terms of using the same language of you know screenwriting for Lost City of Z, the internal conflict in Charlie Hunnam's character, the explorer character, and his interpersonal conflict with his son ties in so beautifully with the world that we have had two hours to kind of understand and explore. And at the very end, uh, like this kind of, like the, like the tragedy that comes with exploration and the feeling of loss is just, it's kind of lifted, like kind of literally in the film lifted uh, to the sense where we're kind of left in wonder. And I think, you know, the, the story is left a little open-ended in The Lost City of Z, but I felt that I took something away. Right. Whereas with Ad Astra, we make it more definite. We understand what happened. We know the fate of the characters and I don't want to spoil them yet, but... At the end, I was just like, I don't, I'm not there with Brad Pitt mm -hmm. at the end. And I was like, that felt, I mean, I was somewhat there, but I think this film, I mean, I mean let me just say that, like, I don't think the film was terrible for this because mm -hmm. it's still doing an amazing job. Um, I think it's a challenge for the film. And I don't, for, at least for me, it didn't fully take me there and bring me back in the way that in Gravity, I was brought back with Sandra Bullock's character. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in the last city of Z, I was definitely I I, I I understood the world. I understood the state of exploration, the state the, you know I understood that the power dynamics of colonization, like the white man entering like and an and in, in indigenous uh, territory in the Amazon, like all those dynamics were all kind of all kind of fit together here. Mm. Um, as I said, like for me, all I can say about it in an abstract way is like the tone was separate from the story. Yeah, well, and and to my point, um, it's it's that interest of exploration that it's seen as a flaw, and 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 the reason, like I said, for for our troubles. Um, right. So uh, uh, let me ask you. So, in if you had to kind of guide Ad Astra towards your interest in um, in you know it's exploration how would the story how would you want to make the story different well f and, and this is very personal to me um yeah. i i wouldn't focus on making the theme of exploration as a negative rather right. than a positive uh, but we can get we, we can talk about that in spoilers um and, and i have okay. it marked down i'm definitely going to talk about that later on in spoilers, okay. right? now uh roy's journey mm -hmm. uh, was so so for me Right. And mainly because everything seemed to be happening to him. And this is a really big issue for me. He's such a passive character that I sometimes felt no connection to him. Yes. Um, at all. I mean, save for those, like you said, those internal voiceovers that he does. You know, Brad Pitt's 
character's reaction to situations is ah you never see him think about what he's doing he he's just thrust in these situations and he manages to get through because well because he's the main character right right um, and, and i commend pit for for giving us so much with so little i mean he he gives a, a good although subtle performance mm-hmm. um and we do see and hear him think about life and and all this seemingly meaningful insights into his psyche but it felt to me like a pastiche of Terrence Malick you know it's Terrence Malick light um mm-hmm. and, and and yes it has some set pieces action set pieces and actions with with, with quotes right because it's right. never satisfying and they're like red herrings it's it's as yeah. if this movie is caught between choosing to be a, a, a meditative, a meditative um, uh, exploration of this father-son relationship mm-hmm. and the roots it has established and, and a sci-fi adventure flick. Yes, but, absolutely. But for me, it, it's more of, of the former, right? Right. Um, it should be more of the former, but I think, and I think, you know, they wanted to appeal it to a much higher audience, a much larger audience that, so a couple of the action set pieces were not even taking the story forward. I know. And they were interesting and showy to watch and very well done. I mean, I don't want to undermine the craft in anything here. But, um, you know, I, I could have done, if we took one of those action piece, a- action scenes or sequences away and just focus a lot more later in the film on the interpersonal conflict, give me like five more minutes five, or maybe three more pages of writing. Like, showing some gesture and communication between those two characters that I'm talking about, uh, which we'll get to in the spoiler section, then I would have, I, I would have understood so much more about them, both those characters as individuals and about their relationship to the philosophical state of exploration and earth in the universe, earth in the solar system. All those are very important kind of themes to tackle in science fiction, right? Like especially grounded science fiction. And I don't fully understand the, the, the turmoil of mankind, which contributes to turmoil in the father-son relationship. I also want to highlight the music mm-hmm. because I think that Max Richter did a fantastic job here. Uh, he's able to, to weave these sounds of the orchestra with, with very subdued electronic sounds and music. And it makes for this very unique ethereal composition it just takes us out of this earth and it positions us in this new unexplored world um his work on the series the leftovers have you seen that have you seen the leftovers um, it's on my list it's okay. on my list yeah. well, that, that's another that's another one that i highly recommend and again I, if you I've if heard you amazing see, things about if it. you see the leftovers please please get back to me because that's one of the that's one of the series the tv shows um that has stuck with me since it ended it's it's great um and his work on that series uh, max richter's work uh his music is is a very integral part of the feeling of that show the the way um it's conveyed and and what it evokes and the same goes for another sci-fi film arrival which mm-hmm. uses um one of his musical pieces as bookends to johan johansson's score and here it's no different. I mean, his his music just elevates everything. Um, all in all, I I I think Ad Astra was a compelling drama mm-hmm. with 
basically an identity crisis. It has the makings of a great sci-fi film, but for me, it just kind of fell short. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm still very, you know, I, I agree with that, and but I'm still very grateful for it. Oh, yeah. For me, it's, um, you know, it does take me somewhat there. And, like, you know, like, we've had so many films talk about Mars, and, like, I'm not even, like, you know, little, talking about the various, like, planets and, like, Imagining a future where it takes like 79 days to go to Neptune from Mars. I mean, wow. Uh, you know, so that's all of those kind of things were exciting to me. And, you know, like um, all the all these films that we mentioned, like Arrival, well, not Arri Arrival was Aliens, but uh, all these films with uh, that just talk about space travel and human beings in space just really um, at least helped me in my day to day life take me out of it and really. It, they're in a way kind of positive for me because they just help me reorient and uh, remind me how important wonder is mm -hmm. in our day to day life. And it's so easy to forget if you're in, a, in every day's news. Um, like, on the one hand, you know, being able to wonder is a privilege today, I think, but also it's also important to attempt if you are able to. Yes. So, you know, I really appreciate the film for that. All right. Um... So, you ready to go into spoilers? Yes. All yeah, right. I'll, let, I'll let you lead with it. Okay, so spoilers. I have a couple of logic questions, okay? Okay. So, <clears throat> there's this signal that he has to send over to Neptune, right? Yes. <laughs> so, I think I know where it's going. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, why... why why not just beam it from Earth to Mars and then from Mars to Neptune? I don't, I don't. I have seen this. Everyone on Twitter is obsessed with this question. Re <laughs> I think okay, so I, I'm not the I, only one. Okay, all right. No, I think you feel some, someone said, why could he just not have sent an email? You know, like why, like, you know. Yeah, that's what I was, I was thinking, dude, we, it, they live in this future, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm sure they have better things than, than, than text, right? It's weird. I don't know what the. I you know honestly, I didn't think about it while I was watching the film, but I it completely makes sense. I tend to like give stories so much leeway. I just like mm -hmm. sometimes forget loopholes. I don't. I don't. I don't pay attention to them uh, because I just want. I, I want them. I want to see what the characters want to do. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the only explanation I have is not a logical explanation, but it's it, it's not answer the story logic. But it gets. Brad, uh, Brad Pitt, while he's giving the message, the second time he has to attempt to get that message from Mars, um, he he gets more personal, right? Like the first time is he's reading it out, if I correct, if I remember mm -hmm. correctly, and the second time he makes a more personal appeal to his father, played by the great Tommy Lee Jones, uh, who, um, so I don't know, I don't I don't know what, I don't know why they didn't do it that way. I think it was a conceit of the story. That's all I can say. Yeah. Well, maybe it had to be encrypted with some Martian thing. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe Mars is a neutral territory. I, I have no idea. I think, I, I don't remember what they said uh, when they first briefed him of the message. Yeah, on Earth, it's just but... like, uh, yeah, 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 you have to go to Mars because sci-fi stuff, so go. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, why could not be done for the moon even? Like, the moon is so, the like, moon is like this big tourist destination. Yeah. Um, and, like, it's fascinating to see the moon is completely over-commercialized. Um, 
I don't know. Maybe Mars was like because I know like Ruth Negus' character was born on Mars, mm-hmm. which is a very she, interesting plot point that yes. doesn't even get they developed at all. They don't do much with it. Like, I mean, I, I, would... I, I I thought we were gonna get into some, I don't know, political stuff, or or she was gonna maybe go on a, on the trip to I don't know to get revenge or i would love i would love to have seen ruth nega more because she is such an amazing her face is so communicative um and i mean that's like a separate gripe we can talk about towards the end about like whose stories are being told and like, yet once again <laughs> we have like a contemplative white man in space like all of that um but um yeah i think her backstory was great and, and it was directly tied in many ways to and at least a couple of ways to Brad Pitt's story. And, you know, I would have loved to see a follow-up and see her, see him back in, I don't know. I would like to have followed up with that character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In yeah. some way. All right. Uh, another logical question. Um, why are they not bouncing when they're in the moon base? Oh, you mean in that scene with the with the rovers across the surface? No, no, no. When when they're there and they reach the moon base, right? And they go okay. up the escalators. They're just uh-huh. walking, like you and I walk. They they don't mention anything about maybe having a false gravity something. Um, but if if I know my 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 moon facts, mm-hmm. the moon has less gravity than the Earth, so right, you would right. be kind of bouncing along, right? I think I mean I I left it just I left that to because it just looks like a regular subway, right? It looks like a regular subway, like and then there's actually apparently a subway sandwich store or something there. Yeah, there's a uh, su- yeah, there's a, exactly <laughs> that was a subway. Yeah, <laughs> but I I just figured that they created the mechanism in which people don't float. I because there was so much advancement. I mean, they go to Neptune for God's sake. So like I just figured that they thought, they I you know I know what you mean. And actually, I was reading about like how they um. In terms of the cinematography, like mm-hmm. I read that um, our our Hoyt van Hoytema, mm-hmm. he shot some of those external moon shots in thirty two to thirty six frames per second. Okay, trying to kind of just get us to um, uh, a place where there's like lower gravity in the motion, and then they added more slow motion to it. They added some lag to the impacts. I'm uh-huh. kind of quoting the IndieWire article here, um, but. Um, I don't know. I, I, I honestly that didn't bump me up too much. It, it, that that chase, um, whatever they did, it it worked. It it really yeah, worked. Um, yeah. and the the sound design in that particular chase was really good as well. Right. Um, it was. It kind of reminded me of the chase in Mad Max because like there's like pirates oh, attacking. Yeah, yeah, but dude, you're yeah, you're, no, you're, you're comparing an awesome, awesome oh. scene. No, no, no. With this, this was okay. It was. was no, no, I'm it was saying okay. that it's, I, I think it's. But no, I, I know, I know what you mean. I know what yeah, you mean. Yeah, By the way, yeah. when they finally reach the far side of the moon, and it's completely dark except for the stars and the silhouette of of it's so good. So beautiful. So 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 good. Those are the film's money shots. Even like how Neptune looks. Um, yes. My God, because like on the one hand, it it looked a little bit flat. But it just wasn't like, you know, like it was um, just very like. And again, I think as audiences, we've seen um, many of us have seen like gravity and all of that. So we've almost kind of been 
tuned into what to expect and that I think we bring our understanding of how the physics works across mm-hmm. stories. And I think filmmakers have to kind of do that because they have to take into consideration what audiences already know, at least contemporary audiences, and kind of, you know, design the, the world building and, this, and the kind of scientific rules of the world mm-hmm. uh, according to previous knowledge so that it's somewhat mm-hmm. consistent. I think, um, but you're right. Like those, like the, for me, like the um, like the shots in Neptune and the shot, the shot that you mentioned um, at the far side of the moon, very, very beautiful. Okay, when he reaches Neptune, right? Oh. Uh, <clears throat> so he uh, he gets to his dad's oh yeah uh, base, right? And mm-hmm. he just leaves the uh, the capsule, right? Yeah. He doesn't tether. Well, he doesn't tether the capsule. He just, he just jumps from it. What you mean, like the uh, you know the like capsule, the capsule that, that he's that, are... that he tries to to dock right and he can't dock right. it. Yeah. So yeah. instead of just, just just tie it, dude. He just jumps. He How just... are you gonna get back, dude? <laughs> I that's what I didn't understand. I don't know why he, like, didn't he want to go back? Did, like, did he think this was his death wish? Like, did he? That's what I thought in the beginning. He, I, I thought, well, this guy has a death wish, um, and that's it. And if that was the case, I did bump up against it for a second um, because, and I, I, the reason I didn't think about it too much was I was just really curious about what was inside. Um, but it wasn't clear what he wanted out of it. It wasn't clear, you know, whether he was just like, after he met his father, any kind of reconciliation would have been good for him, so he didn't care about whether whether a capsule was docked. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't clear about that, and I think that's where the pacing actually went a little fast, and you know, it, it, it didn't give us time to understand the integrity of of those of those uh, decisions. And here's another thing that I kind of bothered me. Um, <sighs> He didn't seem throughout the film that he wanted to go back at all. There's there's no moment, even though we get all these uh, monologues and him thinking about his past and his wife, blah, blah, blah. Once he goes on the mission, he's just on the mission. And at no point, even though he says when he meets his father, let's go back, I never got the sense that he really wanted to go back. It's not until right. the end that we see what he's gained by coming back that you right. say, oh, all right, all right. So he wanted to go back. But there's no sense of urgency for me. I didn't, wasn't. I didn't get a sense of urgency um, of we have to go back. I need to go back. I want to go back, and I want you to come with me. I, I didn't get that sense of, uh, of urgency. Right. And paradoxically for me, there also wasn't that much urgency in going forward towards like he was going there but it almost felt like you know even in the time when he goes from mars to neptune and he has to you know all the other people on the spacecraft die um and he's alone for like whatever 79 days i felt there wasn't much of a propulsive motion taking him forward either so i didn't i mean he wanted to see his father but i just felt that he was as a character ambivalent about it throughout right and the inner, for me, what the, the way the movie lost me, I kind of was just like not interested in it anymore in terms of the central dramatic interpersonal conflict that I kept talking about earlier was just when he met his father. 
I was extremely underwhelmed. I thought that scene I was extremely short. It and because the characters are speaking exactly what's on their minds. Mm-hmm. They're seeing each other after 16 years, and they kept telegraphing earlier about, you know, the idea that like he didn't have a father throughout his childhood. His father had different very uh, different goals from his life, so he wasn't he didn't have the father son relationship that he craved. Um, so when he extends his hand, I'm like, that's five minutes too fast. You know, I'm missing like at least three pages of dialogue <laughs> and I want, I want, I want some pushback. I want some back and forth between the characters. And then I felt Tommy Lee Jones, who was staying there for 16 years, came back, came out so fast with him. So like, you know, if, if Tommy Lee Jones had a death wish and it seemed like, you know, at that point, I, I wasn't clear exactly what he wanted either. So, um, you know, I, he wanted to explore space further, but his son comes up suddenly and tells him, for all I know, like, he just said, let's come back. And they walk out together. And then he leaves him. Like, I, I, for me, I just was paying attention to the motions without paying attention to the story. did not encourage me to pay attention to the underlying decisions behind those and the motivations. Um, and sometimes I need a little bit more guidance and spoon feeding. Um, but so I just didn't know what, what happened yeah. and why Tommy Lee Jones left so quickly and also then decided to go away yeah did did you make any sense of it well no look the film posits that because roy's father was obsessed with exploring and and finding life in 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 other parts of the universe he basically forgot that there was still life uh, on on earth right Mm -hmm. That that his mission to explore only yielded loss and trauma to his family um, and it also suggests that we should basically just forget about our exploration endeavors and focus on what we have here, right, right in front of us, right? Um, but that's not our nature. We are inherently an exploring species. We thrive on discoveries and, and make our, our, our daily lives possible because of them, right? And just because you've been looking for 30 years doesn't mean that there is no life in the universe. The universe has billions and billions of star systems. 30 years isn't even scratching the surface of it. And I was just hoping for a a, a, a better resolution to this. Not Wait, so you were hoping that they would, like, as a father-son duo, they would both continue exploring? No, 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 not at all. But okay. I, I, I just didn't buy the fact that he was such a I, I i feel like he was just just a terrible father um and that's maybe because i'm a father and i would never ever think to do what he did or to say what he said um and then using the um the excuse of exploration as as this negative force that made him do this because I want right. to keep exploring, I'm going to forget about you. Because I want to keep finding out about this universe, I'm just going to completely forget about you and keep going to the point where when you come back 30 years later, I don't want to even see you and I want to stay here. Even right. though I go out with you and then I go back. <laughs> right. So, then, I mean, I, in a way, so I'm thinking about like, you know, how Smeagol in Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. Um, yes. He lived in the cave for 500 years and became more and more obsessed with the ring, and yeah. the ring devoured him. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that. Okay, when you're literally billions of light years away from Earth, you don't see sunlight. 
you don't see and a lot of your other um the other people with you on your crew have died uh, or you've killed them I, I wasn't clear exactly how they died either um you know maybe you, you you know maybe you just pay attention to you become obsessed with the one thing that started you off and then it's very hard if you know we're social human beings and if you have no social people or if you have no society around you then you forget your obligations i i, I could give tommy lee car tommy lee jones's character that what i don't understand is that he was still communicating with the son he had still received the messages right mm -hmm. and when you see your son when you see someone you know from a long time ago and if you're isolated for so many years, I would assume your instincts about your past have been extremely sharpened. I just did not, I felt that they began, like the, the first three minutes when they first met each other, on the one hand, I did not know what to expect, but I was hoping for the storytellers to tell me and then allow me to judge whether that made sense to me. Yeah. And what they presented to me did not make sense to me. Yeah. It felt more like, hey dude, what's up? Yeah. And then, oh, yeah, it's you. Oh, yeah, it's me. Let's go out. Let me take you back. And then when he goes outside, okay, bye. And then he goes off. Yeah. I mean, that's a very kind of cynical way of putting it. But, like, uh, <laughs> that's, 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 that's the kind of disconnect I felt. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was like, okay, then I was out of the story. Because, honestly, going back to one of my critiques is not for this particular film, but the kind of stories that get told. I, you know, there's all these other films that I mentioned earlier, like First Man, and some of them are based on, you know, real stories, but some of them are science fiction, interstellar. Um, I want to see stories about um, other, like, you know, what if we, this, this, what if the story was Ruth Negger's character's story, right? Like, what if we saw her through her? That would be so interesting to see her interiority and to see the kind of past that she's dealing with. Um, but, and, you know, here they kept on telegraphing us to us his childhood where the little kid is on the father's shoulder. And I've seen that in so many films. Yeah, Terrence it's Malick. Okay. It's, it's okay to have that again. I'm sorry? Terrence Malick, of course. Terrence Malick. And, like, you know, like, the flashback to the childhood where the real source of your emotion is where in your adult life you don't have that anymore. I've seen that. So I get a little bit, you know, if it's still, like, a white male consciousness that we're seeing i kind of get a little bit tired of it mm -hmm. and given that i can i can put that aside in a film that's doing many other interesting things but then it doesn't take me there so i felt i felt a little bit disconnected even on the level of whose story is being told this you know didn't really hit it home for me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yes yeah it absolutely makes sense um so let's let, let's dig a little bit into Liv tyler Yes, uh, because that's another character that was. I just... mean, I wish I could deep, dig deeper because there was hardly anything of her. I know, I know. Well, she she was just relegated to the good old trope of the Super lonely wife, relegated. tired of her absent husband. Super relegated. Oh Those characters God. make me so mad. I wish even I I would I wish that like you know he wasn't even married and he didn't have that support because like let him deal with it alone. You know, if you're not fleshing out. I don't know. I, I just do not like the character. In First Man, Claire Foy's character had much more to do. She, you know, she, um, we understood in what way she complemented his struggles. Here, Liv Tyler, if the movie was without her, I think I would have had the same takeaways. Yeah. Yeah, she's basically either a memory or a video feed. And that's it. Yeah. And seeing her in Lord of the Rings, and I, think, I mean, of course, in Lord of the Rings, she's like playing an awesome character. She's playing this amazing elf character, Arvin. But here, again, I don't know. I feel like 
that's still uh, I don't know. I better not. I don't know. Well, speaking was... speaking of Liv Tyler, she she does um, appear on the leftovers. So if you want to okay. see her doing some stuff, okay, highly highly Good. recommend. Good, yeah, because I've been I haven't seen much of her in the last um, couple decades, so it's good to know that she was in the leftovers. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um. All right. Here, here's another another logic question. Um, <laughs> and maybe you can't answer it because you're not an astrophysicist or <laughs> or anything <laughs> of the sort. But, um, how does nuclear explosions work in space? I don't think they can create thrust in space. Because to create thrust, you gotta push against something, right? But a nuclear explosion is just energy, right? Unless you're, you have something right next to it that pushes you. If you are where he was, which was pretty damn far away from the explosion, that's not gonna push you at all, unless you get hit by a rock. Hmm. Right, that's something I've not considered. Because this this is a a a sci-fi fantasy trope, right? Right. But this is supposed to be within the parameters of logical universal well, yeah, physics. Yeah, it's grounded science fiction. It's supposed to be that, right? Anyway, that's that's another no, thing. So, I mean, I'm thinking about like okay, so nuclear explosions in general. Like you know, if you go back to the idea of Big Bang. If, when you go from more dense to less dense, there is force created, right? Yes. So I just assumed when I was watching it that the nuclear reactor was in there in that in that ship, and it was causing because it was causing all the problems in on Earth as well, right? Because it was that's the, the that's where the story starts is because of all these disturbances. But that's when they realized that maybe uh, Project Lima, the people in Project Lima, are still alive. So I just figured that well, the disturbances uh, were antimatter. Okay. That was being shot to the earth, which doesn't make sense either. But let's let's not even delve into that because uh, anyway, anyway. Um, okay. Because when antimatter gets into contact with matter, they just annihilate. Oh, is um, that right? Okay. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm sorry. I'm 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 coming off as a, a, a as a science nerd. No, um, or absolutely not. That's <laughs> like science nerds are the best. Um, but uh. You know when I when I see these types of films, I and 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 they 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 posit themselves as being grounded in in science. Then there are things that just just bump against me that don't make a lot of sense. Um, so uh, this this whole uh, nuclear explosion, I I just I I don't know how it would work. But anyway, I mean. I'll I'll dig into the internet later on and, and, and figure it out. And then the other thing is, and this is my final uh, 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 logical question, is uh, how was Roy able to survive the rings of Neptune with that cheap <laughs> metal sheet that he had? How close were we to Neptune? Were we actually on... We weren't on Neptune. We were outside of... Yeah, we, we, we were in Neptune's orbit. Yeah, We were in Neptune's orbit. Yeah. I don't know much about the or the rings of Neptune. I, I just imagine Neptune is incredibly cold in a way that we don't even understand. Yeah, but you know, it's a, it's it's fine if he gets hit by one or two rocks, right? With the sheet in front of him, right. but a constant barrage of rocks just hammering and hammering and. Ha I mean, at least one has to perforate, right? Right. 
uh, if not many. And and then uh, also he had this suit that um, had some propellant, right? So he could basically maneuver in space. And when he was reaching the spaceship, why didn't he use them to stop? To uh, forget it. No. So you mean okay? I mean, I thought the so. It's, this is two like... questions, actually. It's how did he survive going through the rings with the sheet of metal? And then the other thing is, why didn't he just let it go before he reached his ship and stop with with the propellants? You know that thing? Yeah, yeah. I don't have an answer for you. I did not think about it, but like, I think now that you bring it up, I think they did not take into consideration um, a lot about Neptune, <laughs> uh, other than it being like the blue planet. Um, because like I also read that uh, from from Neptune, the sun is just like a star, like a star in the sky. You know, you don't see it. Uh, so like they had to take enough. They had to like the only like the rays of light that reach Neptune are the ultraviolet rays. Uh, that kind of creates the different kind, and that was one of the uh, cinematogra- cinematographer's choices: is how to light Neptune mm-hmm. in that space. Um, but there's still a lot more light than you would actually see. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So which is I, fine. I, I mean, that, that's but yeah. th- that's. I mean, it happens on Earth when when they shoot at night. You say, "Where's that light coming from? The, is the right. moon that bright always?" Right. Um, right. So so th- those are just filmmaking conventions that we just take for granted. All right. But this other, it's just, I don't know, it's just quibbles that I have with how science works in this, in this movie. No, I mean, I think that these are completely fair quibbles because you, you, want, your, 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 you want a story in a, in a world where if you're going there, then you make the world's, con- like you make the rules of the world very consistent and understandable. And if you're, if you're giving, if you're employing one set of rules, then you want to use that same kind of, laws of science and physics to be applied to something else in this case rings of neptune um i don't know i <laughs> i now now that you've said it i'm like i'm you know if i watch the film again i'm going to be bothered by it well i'm probably going to dig into the internet to figure these out and i'll probably text you okay <laughs> <laughs> rings of neptune all right uh so um anything else related to spoilers that you want to well, no, for me, the spoiler, like the, the, the real spoiler was like throughout the film, I was just wondering whether Tommy Lee Jones is going to be alive. Um, so when we actually do see him alive, you know, I wanted to know that. And but I also wanted to be very satisfied by that scene. And I wasn't. So for mm-hmm. me, the main spoiler really was whether Tommy Lee Jones is going to be alive. I mean, kind of if they are employing an actor like Tommy Lee Jones, he's not going to it's going to be a big enough role. So I kind of knew that. But um also, a fun fact of people who are fans of Orange is the New Black and Russian Doll, we see a lovely cameo by Natasha Leon. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're a fan of her work, I mean, she just like, the moment I heard her voice, I saw I heard her voice before I saw her face. I'm like, oh, I know who that is. Um, I, you know, but she's um, just another pit stop for, for Roy's journey. Just another pit stop. Just another pit stop. Like all these other characters, like like uh, Donald Sutherland and yes. Ruth Nega and... Uh, all these other characters. It's... I mean, that's how you also sell movies now. I mean, with Hustlers, if you I don't know if you saw Hustlers, but like all the all the like only this this Hustlers is a story about two women, and actually in the publicity they talk about six women, two of which have very very little to do in the actual film. So I think that's just the way how movie packaging works now. And I think the Donald Sutherland character was good. It helped me understand um, 
little bit more about the father and son conflict, but I didn't know what to expect beyond a point. All right. All right. Well, um, I would say if, if you really uh, like big epic vistas, um, wonderful music by Max Richter, just go see this movie in a very big theater, uh, nice and comfortable, and just enjoy it uh, for for what it is. Um, it's not a gem of a movie, but I think that does have some redeeming qualities, especially in the filmmaking that right. make it worthwhile. And I would add that if you were looking for a good companion film from 2019, a very different, I don't know if it would again answer uh, all the science holds up, but <laughs> Uh, in terms of just like being inside a spaceship and not doing the travel part, like um, the movie High Life, which stars Robert Pattinson and is directed by the wonderful French director Claire Denis. Um, and of course, it stars the amazing Julia, uh, Juliette Binoche. I would recommend that. It's a, very, it's a very challenging film. It's also very interior and very few words, but it has very compelling characters. And um, characters have very different kinds of conflicts like um but in terms of just like understanding how human beings respond to being alone in space i think that's a great companion film and of course you know i would also recommend gravity uh, as um gravity succeeds in many ways i think even in answering your astrophysics related questions in terms of just like dust hitting you and like mm -hmm. whether your spacesuit can handle all of that i think gravity um so those three films, I think, seen together. Uh, if you want to add a fourth one, Interstellar. If you I, want I'd to add, add Interstellar, one. for sure. Yeah, um, and if you want to add a fifth one, First Man, even though that's not science fiction. Mm -hmm. um, those are, like, great films from this decade um, that discuss, that really help us understand these boundaries of life that we don't think about on a day-to-day -day basis. All right. Dr. Mehta. Anything I, else? Uh, no, that's it. I, this was great. This was, you know, you made me think about um, parts of the storytelling and the logics that I had not thought about. So I really appreciate this, this, this discussion. All right. Well, um, before we leave, uh, I'd like our listeners to don't forget about checking out Daniel Hanna's film, Miss Virginia, out in theaters October 18th in limited theaters and on video on demand. And to donate to artists for change artists for change go, go, it's, go it's artists for it's artists and the number four and, and then change.org okay all right and that's gonna be it for us today ritesh where can people find you on uh social media um i'm a bit of a hermit but you can find me at on twitter at um meta m-e-h-t-a underscore crick uh, critic it's kind of my ode to my favorite review aggregator site, Metacritic, okay. but with my last name with an underscore in between. All right. And you can find us on Twitter at Media Review Pod. That's Media R-E-V-U-E Pod. And you can send us emails with questions, comments, and suggestions to MediaReviewPod at gmail.com. Or you can leave a voicemail message by calling 407-603-5847. Please don't forget to subscribe to our feed and rate and review the pod with five beautiful stars. Dr. Mehta, it has been an absolute pleasure. 
Thank you so, 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 so much. Thank you so much, uh, Richard, for inviting me. This is um, being my very first podcast. That's going to be memorable. I appreciate <laughs> it. And I really enjoyed our conversation. I really enjoyed reconnecting with you. Yes, yes. And to all our listeners out there, make something, express it, live it, feel it. But please, please don't forget to breathe and look to the stars. Till next time, have a good one. Bye-bye.